Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Joel Edgerton's new biographical drama, Boy Erased. Based on the memoir of the same name by Garrett Conley, the film tells the true coming-of-age and coming-out story of Jared, who is viciously outed to his parents. Pressured into attending a church-supported gay conversion program, he butts heads with its head therapist and begins to find his own voice and accept his true self. Boy Erased is Mr. Edgerton's second directing credit. His debut feature film was 2015's The Gift. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Edgerton spoke with director Gavin O'Connor about filming Boy Erased. During their conversation, Mr. Edgerton discusses the surreal position of directing two of Australia's most distinguished actors, Russell Crowe and Nicole Kidman. The lessons he learned from his first film and the visual approach to making the film immediate. Bit of comedy. Hey, did everybody enjoy the movie? Hey. It's so weird sitting up here with you. No, we're just saying we, we haven't seen each other in a while and we're, we're very good friends, but we don't catch up enough. And like, if it's okay with you guys, we're just going to catch up. <laughs> we're just going to have a private conversation. Talk about, about private that. stuff. Uh, well, congratulations. It's a beautiful movie. I was blown away. I, it's, it's Joel's second film as a writer and director. And um, maybe, yeah. So maybe, maybe, maybe maybe where to start is just the the origin of you know how you got the book the material why you decided to tell the story so uh kerry roberts who produced the movie gave me the book like uh she she was strangely looking for a little uh holiday reading uh (laughs) away from work as a producer at anonymous she was sort of looking to throw a bit of wood on the fire of how she felt about current state of the world i guess and particularly in, in relationship to the fear of people's fr- freedoms and rights being walked backwards. And she came across Garrett's book and, and was really intrigued by it, loved it enough to want to seek out the rights and realised that after a year of being on the shelf that nobody had been trying to turn it into a, a movie. And so she got sort of got the rights or inquired and gave me the book, unaware of the fact that I had grown up with this I don't know other people who experienced this too, but I, I, when I was a child, was so scared of being sent away from my parents. Like, I, I think I watched some movies and TV shows at too young an age that brought up this fear of being sent to like horrible boarding schools where people would be mean to me or worse, prison or military. And as a Catholic boy, that's what I used to pray about, that I'd be safe. And here in this book was this story about a boy who was sent away from his parents by his parents and that to me was sort of something I never ever had ever considered. Not only that was it something that wasn't as salacious as I went, I went to the book expecting there to be more blood on the pages, you know, and and 
I was so moved by this family story and realized realizing that it was so cut and dried that these were a bunch of people who who harmed their child and therapists who harmed this boy and other children because they were doing something out of love, thinking they were trying to help. And that 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 conundrum to me made it worth investigating to do something about as as a movie. And it's interesting because you, and I was curious, like in the context of the book, because you never take what I think is so beautiful, and it's just knowing you and your sensitivity and your your humanness that you never, like, you're not judging anybody. So it was so human, uh, even your character, that he was coming from a place of his own damage, his own pain, that you can always kind of sense there's something else going on under there. But he was coming from this really passionate place of what he believed in, and everyone had a very specific point of view and as a filmmaker you never judge that and is was that something that was in the book or was that was it what, what did the did the did the writer have a more sort of penetrating view and then you said no I have to step back and be more his point of view is almost like alarmingly empathetic I mean he had dedicated this book to his parents and he had all the opportunities in the world to to paint uh, John Schmidt, who who my character is based on, as just some out and out evil guy. And yet, like I'm saying, the hand that's pushing all these kids in is 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 a hand of love and help, and and a hand that's that's informed by belief or faith, but not hate. It's fear to me. I I went in thinking, oh, this is all hateful people doing hateful things and it's not it's fearful people doing loving things which is much more complicated and because the book was so empathetic maybe that's the reason it got under my skin you know I think approaching characters as an actor is about understanding having an empathetic approach them not judging characters and and finding an engine for any character you play whether they 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 sort of judged as a villain or a hero that I think there's certain aspects of society that are populated by villains that are like predators and uh, serial killers and whatever, but there's a thin wedge of humanity. Everybody else, I think, has got an agenda of righteousness that they fully invest in, but they're only the enemy because they're on the other side of what you believe. It'd be so easy, though, as a filmmaker to, to, to land on a side of, of, you know, portraying that whole world in such a vicious way and it, was, it could be a horror movie. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And, yeah. and look, there is that story to be told as well. I mean, you know, there was something about just being honest as, as a document that I thought, okay, this is going to be tricky because uh, if we really did, you know, get 101 Dalmatians about it, um, you know, the, all those great characters that probably were the foundation of that childhood fear of mine were usually people running, like the woman running, at, you know, the, the, the uh, what do you call it, orphanage in Annie and, you know, and they're like ratchet. waving to the parents and then they're like, get inside, you know, and it's like that no doubt would make us more money but I wonder would it resonate as honestly for what we want to achieve because there's, there's the movie entertainment aspect of it but there's also that there's no question that there's an opportunity starting with Garrod's experience that led to him writing the book that, but led to me wanting to make the movie that's led to all this other stuff that has a chance at really kind of starting a conversation. I believe conversations can be had when, when certain voices aren't too loud, you know, and it creates a space of empathy for everybody to have like an examination of, of what's going on. Has Garrod seen the film? 
Yeah, 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 he has. And uh, I'll be with him again tonight. He and his mother are great supporters of the film. I mean, he read almost every draft. I, I tried not to bother him with every little change, but every significant draft, he was there on set. He saw every significant cut of the film. It was so important that, you know, he, he, I had his stamp of approval. It's an interesting thing when you make, uh, when you make a film that's based on, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's based on, on, on someone's life because I'm curious, like when you, when you, is that the one person that you want to, to appreciate the film more than anybody else? Is that the person <laughs> that you have to get like? Yeah. It's scary, right? I would think it'd be scary. It is pretty scary. I mean, you also don't want to presume to just go, hey, thanks for your book and um, yeah. I'll see you in a year and a half or maybe I'll never see you again. I'm just going to, I'm just going to capitalize on your which, which, life. Which happens. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Filmmakers, and also some people say, "Look, with respect, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I've, I met you in um, place A, but I'm moving through the forest of Hollywood here, and and I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to manipulate this into something very different." So, with all respect, but you know, I believe like whatever deviations I was making or whatever I was leaving out, for example, of the book, I would always ask Garrod's approval. It was just our particular relationship, given that. I also knew on a business level and, and, you know, on an altruistic level, ultimately it helped me that I didn't abandon him or he wouldn't abandon me, that we would be together at the end of this kind of – because the movie wasn't going to end when we finished making it. So, you know, it just was the relationship that I instinctively felt I needed to have with him and I didn't feel I could have made the movie without his approval. So why don't we talk about the cast? Your the three leads are all, are all, all Australian actors and playing American roles. So how did that come about? And was that was it must have been intentional? Yeah, there's a lot of things it's, that I it's resisted. An illustration of his feelings for American actors. <laughs> oh God, not at all. Um, I had this this sort of uh, oh, sort of oh, fuck moment when um, <laughs> when I looked at Garrett's family photographs. And Russell and Nicole were staring back at me. Yeah, you saw at the end of the movie. You, I think you had to go out and pee. But um, the uh, Russell and the dad bear such a resemblance to each other, not just physically and you know visually, but 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 energetically. Because you know the other thing was, I given the empathetic point of view, I'd kind of round up everybody I could and go visit them. The parents, I went to their church, I had dinner at their dinner dining table and they welcomed me into their home. I went and visited Dr. Judy, who Cherry Jones's character is based on. I went to Texas and had lunch with John Schmidt, uh, who my character is based on. Uh, I had lunch with him and his husband in Texas, you know, like because it was like I wasn't asking their permission for anything so much as just being like, like going to them and saying, I'm telling your son's story or I'm, I want your, you know, I want your child's hand in marriage. It's like I'm telling you, you know, like when you do that, I guess when people do that, ask for their someone's hand in marriage, they're not saying I'm kind of asking for it. It's, I'm standing here face to face and telling you that's what I want to do <laughs> and that's what I wanted to do with the mum and dad and that's what I wanted to do with uh, John Schmidt and learn from them in the process. So, you know, that, that was a way. But Nicole and Russell, I was reticent to cast them or reticent to cast both of them together because I didn't want it to feel like I was just walking down the street in Australia and going, Nicole, you home? <laughs> you busy? Um, 
uh, oh, Ross, you're in the kitchen. Hey, what are you doing? Um, uh, it, it was simply that that's who I saw when I looked in the f- family photo album and more and more when I met the family and I was like, oh, great. Because they're not – I mean, they're, we're all friends now, but they weren't friends then. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. So how does that work? Do you, do you call them personally or do you go through the proper channels? Just go way? through the proper channels, yeah. you know, call Russ's agent. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait for the – either wait for the silence or the response. And uh, to their credit, given the subject matter, Nicole and Russell read the script lightning fast and I was on the phone with them, you know, like within a week. Um, I actually knew Lucas Hedges better than I knew Russell and Nicole because I uh, had worked with his father and I'd been I'd played basketball with Lucas a ton of times in Atlanta back in 2000 and. 12, you know, not long after we worked together, I'd been down in Atlanta with Pete Hedges. Wait, is his dad, his dad is Pete Hedges? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, and Pete oh, wow. directed uh, yeah, no, uh, yeah. Ben is Back, which is, you know, one of Lucas's 48 other films <laughs> <laughs> that he stars in and is so marvellous in this year. Um, that's That was my point of contact with Lucas. And that was the year he got his first job in um, Wes Anderson's film uh, Moonrise Kingdom. That was the beginning of his acting career. Had nothing to do with me, I was, but I, I, I remember writing him a little note at the time, saying, "You know, good on you, and have a great time, and you're a great kid." You know. So let's talk about the difference between making your first film and making your second film. What was the the learning growth? The, the maybe just speak to the difference in approach and and craft and confidence and. Fears. Yeah, I mean, thank God the fear was still there. I I wondered if I would be like, oh, it's cool, I've done it before, I won't be as terrified. And I don't want to be terrified, but I also don't want the fear to not be there. I think fear equates to caring. I had come out of the gift knowing it was very much a genre exercise and I was very artful about making that as a first film because I did realise it would give me a chance if I did it well enough to, to make a second film. And what I learned from doing that first one was like I really loved actors and I would love to do something that was more of a drama and didn't hinge on any kind of uh, genre or certain tropes. And So I knew I wanted to do a drama. I knew I wanted to put something positive into the world because the gift is – there was a good message in there but it was in a very sinister package. Um, so that were really my only two mission statements. And when I read the book, it wasn't until I was deeply obsessed by it and moving forward on various fronts, more, mainly as a producer in the beginning, that I, I realised that it had ticked those boxes for me. Um, because as much as this is harrowing to a degree the journey that Jared goes on, the the ultimate end game is that it has a hopeful message in terms of the roundabout understanding the parents start to realise by looking back on their actions. And, and, it, and I realised how similar the two movies are and that everything I've ever written seems to revisit the same kind of terrain, which is I seem fascinated by people making mistakes and what they do in the aftermath of it, that it's not what you do that, that matters so much as what you do next that counts. Um, and I think that is a real show of great human character and, and that's what Jason Bateman's character was in The Gift, albeit the unwilling, <laughs> the unwilling participant in his own clean-up and he pays the price to a degree for it. And this is really the parents in that, is being able to be courageous enough to look back and go, okay, 
where did we go wrong here? Because we caused pain when we thought we were trying to help, you know. Well, that's what was so beautiful. Was the, you know, the conversion was the parents and not, and not the boy. Yeah, right? and, and in terms of approach, I, I, you know, I talked with Edu Grau, my cinematographer, who uh, is uh, currently shooting Garen, Gavin's new film, right? He is. And I love him. Um, and, and I just sort of started to understand a little bit more about how to work with, with uh, people I'd worked with before and sort of letting myself a little, little bit off the leash again of that genre aspect of the gift felt like we, we kind of had this very clear way that we were going to shoot that whereas I felt like we could be a little bit looser and I also gave more freedom in, in my comfortability with Edu to, to define certain things I wanted to achieve psychologically and let him interpret those rather than try and impose my will on him. So I think I, think I learned a little bit more about um, appreciating the craft of the people around me and, 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 and not seeing that as losing control but, but actually just a, a kind of a greater experience. I would think the gift, like creating a visual style, I would think the gift is easy just because it's a genre movie. So you can look like this. When you look at, when you look at your movie, it's a... It can go in so many different ways, visually. Production design, art direction, photography. So how did you, so what was the approach to come up with a visual style? We, we talked a lot about colour, you know, because I'd been to a lot of these environments. In my research trip, I, I was just like, okay, I'm afraid that love and action is going to be a very muted place. There was a, there was a uniform of sorts, you know. Um, there was not a lot of colour. The, the light... We talked a lot about light in the mornings versus that, that weighed down feeling you get at a seminar when the afternoons come around and you're just fading. Um, and then to allow a little bit more vibrancy of colour into the flashbacks, you know, that, the, that that could have a bit more life. But even the flashbacks had to start to converge with that muted stuff. So colour was a big aspect. Um, Certain scenes we knew we wanted to try and render in, in one shot. I, I mean, talking about the rape scene, you know, there's there's a couple of edits in there simply because I, I realised in the edit room I wanted to make it more brutal by extending it. Um, but otherwise that whole moment of Lucas to waiting for Henry to come down and to the end of the rape and the end of the confession, at least on Lucas's end of, of uh, consoling his rapist which really happened, uh, would have been just one shot. And just taking some risks in that sense, visually. But, you know, my, my instinct also and, uh, was to shoot at um, uh, 185. My, my earlier film was, was, you know, 235. And I didn't want to make it pretty, you know. Um, and I was looking at, at films that I appreciated. You know, one of, one of the big references for me, even though it's a very different kind of story, is, is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And there was something that Ido and I talked about just in that format that, that made it feel a little bit more immediate and less cinematic and, and we were willing to let that go. We also shot uh, on Alexa and film, which is interesting. We were in tight spaces in cars a lot, so we were using that and, and darker scenes we used Alexa. And then... Daytime exteriors, we, we used film just to get a bit more latitude of colour. Did you have, was that an issue with the, with the financiers shooting on film? 
just for the it's just it's one it's an issue these days i mean for just labs lab costs and and um and getting film stock it, it is but we weren't doing too many days on film and the costs weren't that radical um i wonder sometimes whether people are a little bit more lenient on me because people get confused that actors get told yes too much and then it's like <laughs> well now he's a director should we still keep telling him yes like what <laughs> And I, I just kept saying to people, you know, it's okay to tell me no if, if you – because I would hear word that there were these backroom kind of debates about stuff that I thought was not a problem. I was like, you've got to tell me if, if I'm causing a problem. But on that front, it wasn't well, – You're a producer on the movie, so they were, they, were, they were eliminating you from certain conversations because I was asked as a director and not – I asked to be eliminated from certain conversations, certain meetings once we were in production – to me, my, my producerial role in the film was that, you know, once I had the book, the, the ignition of writing the screenplay, gathering the team, getting the finance together, and once that was all done, I then I say to people like Kerry Roberts, it's like, all right, don't let me now get in your way because I'm not answering the email chain or I'm not turning up to a meeting. I've got other things to... Deal with, but at the same time, I felt like the the right to call myself a producer in that sense was that I'd produced the foundation of something thanks to Garrod, and activated that in in a very dynamic way, in a very uh, productive way. Um, yeah, and I'm a megalomaniac. <laughs> That's probably the easiest answer, isn't it? So, so you so you didn't you didn't experience a lot of no's. Like the deeper you got into 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 prep, closer to principle you weren't hearing like you have to cut this or we can't afford that or we have to come up with a solution to do oh absolutely i i for example we initially were going to do two days in new york for for lucas's stuff at the end of the film and really use new york as a backdrop we ended up shooting uh new york for um uh, atlanta for new york i i did make a lot of compromises you put that uh, visual effect of the empire state building yeah right yeah yeah so you know we we uh, we did make a lot of compromises. The shoot was thirty five days. Uh, the gift was twenty four. Um, we were we were condensing a lot into thirty five days. It still felt like we were just being whipped along. Um, and certainly, I I had to do that kind of last minute reexamination of the script and be very kind of judicious about. You know. do, do you ever find that necessity is a mother of invention? Oh, yeah. Isn't I amazing? come from Australian filmmaking. <laughs> <laughs> like, but it's amazing, right? You can't you, get money when, for it to solve a problem. You, you MacGyver it. You, you MacGyver it, man. And, and, and it's and, so and exciting. a lot of times it's better. It's always better, right? I have to say. I I've never seen. It's astounding. My, we don't want to tell financiers that, because the, but it, it actually usually works out to be because you're forced to come up with a creative solution and it's usually better. Yeah, and and sometimes it's like the end of the day, something kind of crazy is going on and you don't have what you need and then or you, you lose the location. And the solution, looking at the edit, you go, oh, thank God that happened because I can't imagine the movie now right. if I wasn't faced with that issue. Yeah, yeah also editing, do you find that you start to – so I find the more I'm in the editing room, the more I'm astounded by things that I didn't think I would cut that you end up can fall away. But also approaching film where I'm trying to – I always try to edit more um, 
you know, either before I'm shooting the film or even while I'm shooting the film because it forces you once again to re just keep thinking about or visualizing the movie in your head. I think it would be amazing to, to be able to visit the edit room while you're writing the screenplay. Because <laughs> <laughs> you like, none of this can go, no, everything's perfect. Go, yeah. I mean, not perfect, but everything's necessary. Every piece of this is building towards something. And when you look back and realize that you got rid of large chunks of what you thought was, was imperative... It kills you to think what extra days you could have bought. But I, I will say this is like I know people that cut a film and, you know, almost beat themselves up that it's not exactly the way the screenplay was laid out. And I think that's absurd. I mean, to, to, to use that rule in life is to say that you're not willing to adapt. The, the edit process to me is the third, the third phase of the writing but probably the second most important. And if you're not if you're not excited by learning from the evolution of your own film in a way that you're like, oh, I don't care that this was a last-minute discovery. I, I don't need to have had it when I wrote the screenplay. It's not like that was a competition of who could predict the future. I mean, for example, the footage of Lucas as a child in the beginning, I felt like there was a dark cloud that started this film when I read the book because the book really started for me, my first memory of it was when I, he was in the early pages, he was literally checking, being checked into this prison. I was like, oh, that's really interesting because we, we will do that. We won't know what kind of prison it is. And then I started thinking about marketing materials and like, are oh, they going to know what kind of prison? It's not going to be that big a surprise. But still this feeling was there was this dark cloud hanging over the movie and I was like, I want to know who that boy is before his sexuality has become a problem for him and his family. And I was like, what do parents do when they love their children as a child? They incessantly film them. And that act is done out of a purity of love. And so I called Peter Hedges and, and Susan, his wife, went digging through and found this footage of Lucas. And it was exactly what I, I needed because you like – they. His sexuality wasn't a question then. He's adorable and he's adorable now. You just don't – you need to learn it, you know? Was he, was he your first choice? Was he the first actor you went to? Yeah, and, you know, Kenny Lonigan has a lot to do with it because of – you know, I, I like Manchester by the Sea so much and because of its structural nature, I, I went back to watch it after I'd read the book because it was like how he passed out information in that film was – was very interesting and it was it was necessary I think to the success of that film is is the revelations at the right moment so I watched it the second time then I was writing the screenplay and I discovered I just couldn't get Lucas out of my head but for the right reasons he's he was between a being a boy and being a man he had this energetic regular boy quality to him where he as Garrett did he could pass as straight until he got to college. He was neither a jock nor was he super effeminate. And as a blank canvas as an actor, he was expressive in a way that he could, he could fulfill what I needed from him without – while people were just talking at him and preaching to him and, and pushing him around on their, their agenda. So I, I, he was in my head. Actually, I, I didn't have a single person on a casting front say that I didn't, ha I didn't have to go to anybody that I didn't go to first, which was a rare thing for me, you know, because I think 
but it, I think the gift had a lot to do with it because it, it wasn't a question mark that I think before people were like, well, are you going to see this thing through? Is this just some vanity thing for you because you're an actor? And I, I had the faith and the interest of people in the subject matter and the fact that they were willing to trust me mean that they, they read it quickly and I had my cast almost to the point where the terror set in all too quickly because I was like, okay, <laughs> I've got to make it now. <laughs> yeah. So what's it like, uh, you know, sitting and thinking like, you know, Bradley just did it with uh, with Star. I, I can't wait to see that, by it's, the way. It's, so beautiful, it's beautiful. Ahead man. of time, happy yeah. for him. Yeah. But so, I mean, and I, and I'm, so what's it like to be, how do you do that when you're, when you're acting? Do you have someone sit at the monitor and say, um, how does it work for you when you can? I don't know how Bradley did what he did, which I haven't seen yet, which I hear is amazing. <clears throat> And how I know he, he I remember it. him telling me he had conversations with Clint Eastwood about because they had done um, American Sniper. So he, he, you know, that was one of the. Well, Clint's the, done it. Exactly. So, like, he was, you know, Clint educated him on uh, at least his process. And I know Ben has the faith in his first, and, and, and yeah. Ben Affleck has done it, but they're playing lead roles. And I have to admit that the joy of directing is, is diminished a little bit by having to jump back and forth. So Edu, uh, our cinematographer, sent me a photo the other day of me kind of like going like this, getting into my costume because I was like we'd set up the scene in one of the therapy things and I'm like, all right, well, what's what, what's holding us? And it, and someone said to me, well, you're not in costume yet. <laughs> and, I went, oh, and, and I ran into what would be like the room right there or the room right there, where, which was my dressing room because I couldn't go have a trailer. And I'm dressing it, and Edu ran in and took a photo of me. And he said, he said this sums up that two weeks of the movie to me. But I had a big smile on my face. I had my brother there looking at the monitor for me. Oh, he was there for the, all your scenes? He was, yeah. Oh, wow. And, you know, um, but my, my performance I feel affected by when I look at the monitor. So there's the, there's the conundrum for me is on set as a director. I'm like, well, I can't monitor my performance I'm going to get too in my head about it so I can't go back and re-watch takes I remember on Warrior we used to do it because of physicality we go and watch the, the, the fighting but like when it comes to just the drama of scenes you know I think it can waste time and an actor can really get in their head so I would have my brother do it and I trust him enough that he can just go good but go again and we would have these gestures I, I understood what he was saying he'd be like you know, you try something else, you know. And we knew from across the room what was needed. I knew what the frame was and I knew how I wanted to fill it. He just gave me the judgment on whether I'd stuck the landing or not. Would you at times just keep rolling and go back to one since like when you're shooting the Alexa, you don't even cut and just... Yeah, sometimes. And then sometimes I found myself directing the young group in character towards the end of the day to talking about solving problems when, when we didn't have much time left. They listened to my character more than they listened to me. So I remember telling one guy, David Dittmore, who's a beautiful man, he's an older guy in the group who, who's, who has a tear in the beginning. He was in the wrong place and, and Joel would have taken like, you know, 45 seconds to be like, hey, David, do you mind, you know, can you go over here? And I was like, I just yelled at him, what are you doing there? Get over there. And he was like. Um, and uh, I caught the kids looking at the monitor one of them said to me, Cameron, the beautiful Britain's here, he said to me, um, hey, Joel, I was just looking at the monitor and um, 
I, I notice I'm writing things down and should I not do that because I'm not sure if that's a good idea and, I, and I'm like, who's showing you the monitor? Because I told them no, they couldn't look at it. He said, oh, oh, there's a monitor up the back. And I said, all right. And it was just in this long three-minute take we're about to do that leads up to the genogram thing where we track over the kids' faces and I'm telling them to draw up their family tree. It lands on you, it pans across everybody. Yeah, and I had this speech about, you know, um, you, there's no such thing as being born gay. And knowing that the camera wasn't going to get to me for three minutes, I gave them a lecture on not watching the monitor <laughs> in character. <laughs> And their faces were so, like, after 12 takes. Yeah, so there were some benefits to that of, like, confusing the roles yeah, in yeah, order to yeah. get things I wanted. It yeah. was manipulative to a degree but not mean-spirited. Yeah, no, you got to – you know what? You got you to get the shot. You got to get the shot. You got to get the you shot. You got to get the that, shot. This is I the was thinking because that was – I love that shot. It was just such a slow – pan across everyone's faces and we just heard you talking and talking and talking perfectly timed and it landed right there it yeah it was one of those uh things where you go uh th where everybody places bets on how many takes it's yeah. going to be until you get one that you feel happy with but you know it's a really interesting question about being a director and and how mean you can be uh because i'm talking about where, where do you how important is the movie that you're willing to kind of do whatever it takes? And I really admire people who can do that because sometimes being too nice or being empathetic gets in the way of it. But then if, you, if, you don't, if you're not possessed of that empathy and appreciation for those around you, you also miss out on other stuff. So somehow a balance of both is good. You know, uh, I know directors who uh, will do whatever it takes at, at all costs to get what they want, but I don't want to be necessarily that person i think there's a balance i know that's why i love you so much too is that you know that gavin's gavin's not gonna put the movie above life or the world but but there is a pinch of knowing that money's on the line and you do have a story to tell and it is important to a degree but it's not life it's 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 close to life it's a resemblance of life but it's a little below you know it's just, you know, Relationships but there's a, are there, there's too. also a spirituality to making, I think, to make to telling stories and and being so blessed to be able to 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 to, to do this. And I also believe, which I think, um, you know, and I spoke to, you know, we we share. I'm, I'm shooting a film now, and and Joel um, f told me I had to hire a cinematographer, which I did. Um, but the the idea of creating an environment on set that feels loving and feels, you know not only compassionate, but getting the best out of everybody. You, you, you know, we're not at home with a paintbrush and an easel where it's a team sport making movies. So your job is, I, I believe, is to get the best. You hire people that are better at their jobs than we are at their jobs and then get the best out of them, right? And then take all the credit. And then take the credit, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so I have to ask you about the score. Oh, yeah. And the score was, it, 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 right? Isn't the score beautiful? Danny Bensey and Sonda Durian, who I'd I don't know them. on The who Gift. Oh, they're the, okay. So they, I'd first come across them when they did um, Martha Marcy May Marlene, the score for that film, which I loved, which, again, tapped into my morbid curiosity of cults and people being sort of locked up against their will, a movie about a, a girl escaping a cult. Things like uh, the wolf, documentaries like The Wolf Pack and LA 92 and um, just really wonderful. They're a duo. Saunder 
is more of an expert at kind of synthesized stuff and guitars and strings. I mean, and Danny comes from a real classical string world of violins and bass and piano. And they're a great combination of people and I really love them and I believe that you get the most out of your relationships each time you work together and, and uh, yeah, so. But, it, you know, it's interesting. It was like how do we get an element of a little bit of this sense of horror out of the score without being too manipulative and how do we get a sense of beauty for the family of, of, of a hopefulness without being too saccharine about it. So it seemed to me a, a, a mathematical equation on with two different types of elements of score without pulling back from the being too anything, too this or too that. Um, uh, and it was tricky because, you know, we were just finding things and, and there was a big debate. And the, the cool thing about those guys is, as I said to them, I, I so don't hear what the score needs to be that are you willing to come in really early, like before I even started shooting, giving me sort of ideas that, that they elicited from the script rather than me handing them a finished cut and saying, all right, now go for your life. I just did the same thing. I hired and same thing because then you could, did you, did you temp with, were you temping with? I was temping with the, some of their. With their stuff that they were getting too stuff, early, right? Or stuff that they appreciate. They're giving me some, um, some composer stuff that they really liked and felt was in the right world. Yeah. And then we just kept talking and they were throwing ideas. And if I had a sizable enough chunk of the film, I would send it to them so that I could start to hear what they would do with it. It had, there was like this, it was so bordering on like horror, but then it wasn't horror, like the staccato minor key piano and then the strings would come in but it never ever it just made you feel and for me anyway I just felt either tense or anxious or slightly uncomfortable but never but always within the context of a drama yeah and that, that was actually what yeah. we were trying to do it's amazing I, I think of all the components of m movie making you know there's the broad thing like some people like a movie some people don't it's some people like this kind of movie some people like that kind of movie if you get all the people that like this kind of movie or like, you know, Marvel movie or like whatever, it's score that seems like the most polarising thing. It's like some people are like, oh, my God, this score is amazing and then other people won't even think about score um, and some people have a particular thing they're looking for. It's, it's a really interesting thing. So I just early on was like, I'm just going to keep trusting my instincts and, and make this about my collaboration with them, you know. Um, I also had a mantra of the film in general, which is to not allow myself to get too carried away in any sort of avant-garde way with the film because my kind of one of my intentions for the film is that I needed as many people as possible to see it and, and that if I had a chance that the sort of people who wouldn't normally go and see a movie like this would need to see it. I didn't want to give them any reason to kind of go, oh, this is just some weird... Well, give us an example of that. What, 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 like, if you went to the more arty or avant-garde direction, what, like, what, what do you mean by that? I'm not sure I understand. Well, I think if I... Uh, do you mean by making just making it more commercial or, or... No, I mean by making it less... Like, I'm talking about having a mind to make it commercial enough in its rendering in terms of... Uh, uh, Sound, like sound, music, 
um, and I mean, it's not really my sensibility anyway. I mean, if you, you know, you saw the gift. It's 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 a very. Uh, I mean, it, it got a wide release, you know, and I knew I was dealing with a very limited, limited, limited release here, and hope for platform release, and the chance to kind of have people in Middle America and Christian groups, and you know, so for for those people to be able to go, we can watch this movie and we can talk about what we saw. And I didn't want to have anybody be able to look at a trailer or look at a thing and go, oh, this is just some Hollywood liberal avant-garde weirdness and, and, and to write it off simply on those terms. I'm talking about a very slim sensibility, but so in the, it, the, I didn't want the music to be too obvious, but I also didn't want it to be too crazy and weird, yeah. you know, yeah. um, which I might have done if it was a different story. But actually, I thought it felt... I thought it felt subjective. I felt a lot of the music felt like it was almost like his heartbeat. Mm. You know, that that's how it was. And also or his, uh, when there was in his bloodstream as he was moving through. And there's very kind of swinging pendulum sounds with a string, this mm. bow yeah. of, of, of choice, you know. this is a, Definitely inside his psychology we talked a lot about, you know, his, his getting to the point of going, am I this or am I that? Am I going to make this decision or where do I stand in this, like, why am I feeling torn between those two forces? You know, and what was so? What was it like working with Russell and Nicole for the first time? I'm sure those are two actors that, as an as an Aussie, that you must have, uh, you know. Yeah, had, I mean, had, like had, had try, try teaching Carl Lewis to run, or <laughs> you know, Nadal to to have a better serve. I I, I did feel, you know, that those those two people like. I looked at them as I was before I even became an actor when I was wanting to be and when I was at drama school Russell was had basically kicked down the door of Hollywood and um rubbed his beard in everybody's face and and taken the place over in like a short space of time um he was somebody who moved into the sphere of working in the states and he was doing it at, he was standing on top of the mountain I mean his performances in, in those years, well, kind of every year, it was like, like the insider, I was like, oh, my God, this, he, it was like Russell just popped up in America and did one of the greatest performances I'd, I'd ever seen. Um, so I identified with him. He was a bit of a hero of mine. So then coming to work with him was, was I had to kind of redesign my relationship and not go in there with any sense of fear. Um, and uh, Nicole in the same way in a different aspect. But I think mainly with Russell it was because he was a man and that's as a young male actor that's who I kind of wanted to be. And there I was kind of presuming to be his director or his boss of sorts. So it was, I did have to kind of have a talk to myself before I, before I went to set. But those, they, they were both incredible and, and receptive to, you know, I think there's a myth with, with movie stars that they're just like, I got this. Just leave me alone. Um, done enough movies, you know. I got this covered, and 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 I think good, really great actors are great because they have a willingness to be. Because you're the outside eye as well. They can't see it from the inside, and and it's not about telling them they did something wrong or that they're not a good actor. It's really just about sometimes about creating shapes. Sometimes it's about creating alternate uh, options. Um, or, or, or manipulating an, an emotion. Oh, um. uh, I think we have to. I think we have to wrap it up. So, um, 
Thank you, Joel. Those are thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q and A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of the Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll have a lot more for you in the coming weeks as awards season approaches, including Q and As from Alfonso Cuarón, Julian Schnabel, and Barry Jenkins. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.